Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. It sounds, in a way, similar to wind chimes. It's melodic and it's got a metallic, melodic sound that floats through the air. When you're far away and you can't quite make out the tune, it might sound a little bit like raindrops or a bit like a waterfall. So imagine a waterfall with music coming out of it. (laughs) This music you're hearing is made by just one instrument, even though it sounds like many instruments together. It's called an imbira, and the person playing it is named Chaka Zinyamba. This is a song called Kariga Mombe. So to play it, you use your two thumbs. Um, you're holding the instrument. You hold it down on your knees. So it's, it's upright. And you pluck at the keys with your two thumbs. The small keys, the very thin ones, the ones that produce the high notes, you pluck them from below using your right forefinger. The rest of the keys, you pluck them from above. Hi, I'm Tanera McLean, and this is The Doc Project. I'm part of The Doc Project team, and I'm in for AC Row this week. The first time I saw Chaka play in Bira was a couple of years ago at Edmonton City Hall. The music was so entrancing that I can still close my eyes and be right back there. The huge gathering space at the center of the building is a giant glass pyramid, and the acoustics in here are amazing. There's a musical jam session happening, and Chaka, well, he's part of it. He and his Mbira are leading a group of musicians through a trippy-sounding experiment. Picture a cello in one corner, a French horn in another, about a dozen people riffing with each other. The experience is kind of mesmerizing. The acoustics in the room make you feel like the music is coming from everywhere, but nowhere in particular. And there's Chaka, in the middle of it all, with his Mbira. This 
instrument goes deep into the history of Zimbabwe. We're talking hundreds of years being played in one form or another by different groups of ethnic African people. Chaka was born in Zimbabwe back in the late 80s, just as the country was coming out of a century of colonial rule. Although he grew up with the sound of the mbira all around him, that intrinsically Zimbabwean music, well, that sound was divisive. A lot of people thought it was taboo. The actual instrument was believed to be the portal, so to speak, through which uh, we communicated with the ancestors, like the actual instrument. <laughs> so this was like a big no-no for the religious uh, institutions uh, that were coming in from, from England. And so the instrument was banned. Today on The Dog Project, we're launching an initiative that my CBC colleagues and I have been working on for months, Black on the Prairies. The project was created, researched, and produced by a group of talented and brilliant Black journalists. For the next month, across CBC platforms in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, people from the African diaspora are talking about their experiences living on the prairies. And we're starting it all with Chakas and Yamba. Chaka's story is based in Alberta, but it starts almost 30 years ago when he was a little kid growing up in Zimbabwe. Chaka wasn't really into music when he was younger, but he did sing. My family, like many families in Zimbabwe, you know, grew up with a very religious background. And singing is a huge part of that. I was in a Shona choir. So Shona is the indigenous language, my mother tongue, that I you know, grew up speaking. Actually, I grew up speaking both Shona and English, so I could argue that both are my mother tongue. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I was in a Shona choir at some point. You know, would go visit my grandmother, and she had an amazing, amazing voice. And so... Every time we arrived, she would greet us with a song. Every time we left, she would say goodbye with, with a song. We're in my grandmother's bedroom, and we are saying our, our goodbyes. And uh, we all take turns giving her a hug. She's blind, so one of us will walk with her um, as she, you know, leaves her room uh, and walks with us to, to the car. And uh, as we start getting into the car, she's, uh, she's breaking into song and she's singing and we all start singing. Some are crying, some are singing with her, um, and uh, the car starts moving, and we're looking back and waving, and she's waving. There's some dust that kicks up, and uh, she's in the distance. So the song is saying um, there's a lot of work to do in the Lord's garden. And uh, we are his servants, and we'll continue doing his work. Just, just send us. 
where we need to go and uh, we will do your work. In a way, this memory sums up the background tension in Zimbabwe when Chaka was growing up. Hearing the Shana language singing about Christianity speaks to an insidious conflict that was weighing heavy over ethnic Zimbabweans. A pivotal moment in history Chaka's family lived through. I was fortunate enough to have grown up in Borodale, which is one of the more affluent neighborhoods of Zimbabwe. So in many ways, it had all the services and things you would expect of a good neighborhood here in, in Canada. Chaka went to private schools in Zimbabwe. In high school, he went to St. George's College. It's a private Jesuit school that wasn't really known for promoting traditional Zimbabwean music. So I grew up about, you know, one kilometer from a, uh, a shopping mall, uh, which was designed to look like a, uh, a British village. Uh, so a lot of British influence in my upbringing. As a kid, he didn't understand that all of that British influence was actually stamping out a central part of his Zimbabwean heritage. What he also didn't realize back then is that he was going to be part of reviving that heritage through music. Not in Zimbabwe, but 15,000 kilometers away in Canada. So you have, uh, you know, low keys, and you got your high, medium gun keys, and your high keys. So you have three octaves of the same, same note, and you have different notes on, on the instrument. Chaka is holding an mbira. It's come to be the symbol of traditional musical culture in Zimbabwe, although there were many other traditional ethnic groups who had other instruments in the area as well. You've got a, uh, a wooden board, um, which is, you know, maybe the span of, you know, the average person's hand. Uh, you can hold it in one hand. It's got a hole on the right side, and you, so you put your little finger in to play. And it's got uh, metal keys that, you know, might look like the ends of spoons <laughs> um, that they kind of stick out and they're wedged by a metal rod. And those are the ones that you pluck. So you've got some thick ones at the bottom. That's the bass sounds. And you've got some, you know, more um, or less thick ones, um, kind of medium size. And those are the medium sounds. Then you've got uh, very thin ones, and that's where you get the, the high sounds. Chaka is the only person on his dad's side of the family to play the mbira. There was a cousin on his mom's side who played, but... His family thought that was odd, because there was a stigma attached to the music. But only now are we piecing together the fragments we know about this lost civilization and its connections to other kingdoms of pre-colonial southern Africa. Could Great Zimbabwe really have been an African El Dorado, a city built on gold? In this film, I'm going in search of the story... That's a clip from a BBC documentary called Great Zimbabwe. The host is a cultural historian who wanted to debunk myths about ancient Africans and highlight the fact that Africa was prosperous before Europeans showed up. For thousands of years, the area we now call Zimbabwe was home to a sophisticated society. 
they had advanced knowledge of stone architecture. And although groups of people had different beliefs, there was still this open sharing happening. And part of that culture was music. Although Africans had encounters with Europeans before the 19th century, like the transatlantic slave trade, it wasn't until the late 1880s when colonization started to be a major concern in certain parts of Africa. At that time, ethnic Africans understood they were walking a fine line. They knew fair trading with Europeans made sense, but they were also worried. They understood that Europe was making moves to control African resources. Gold. That was the big-ticket item for British colonizers. British business owners got rights from Queen Victoria to open companies in the area we now call Zimbabwe. Colonizers gave the region an English name, Rhodesia, in honor of the guy who opened one of those companies. It didn't take long before British colonists completely took over the region. They came by the hundreds, and the new white government gave all of the prime, lucrative, money-making land to British farmers. And as they moved in, they brought Christianity. Not just the religion, but their belief that their religion, their view of the world, was the only thing that was right. Colonists decided African culture was dangerous and evil. But in reality, the only thing truly in danger was in fact ethnic Africans. Their language, traditions, their mere existence, and this instrument, the Mbira. At that time, Mbira was largely played for religious ceremonies, uh, and that religion was not predominantly Christian. Uh, our traditional religion involves recognizing ancestors as uh, spirits that guide you, protect you, and can be intermediaries between your family and uh, God. At the bottom of the instrument, you have a a metal plate uh, which has bottle tops secured uh, onto it. And the bottle tops, um, traditionally there would have been shells there, but the bottle tops, they kind of provide an additional shaker-ish kind of sound. And uh, apparently when you're really playing and you're really going, this is where the spirits, that's what the spirits like to hear, that shaker sound. And that's when they begin to communicate to, to people. So that's one of the key parts of the, of the instrument. Of course, this was in direct uh, opposition to Christianity. And so the colonial inst- institutions at the time banned Mbira. By the turn of the 21st century, the Mbira was in the crosshairs of colonialism. Mbira is a very deep instrument. My name is Tendai Muparuta um, from Zimbabwe. Tendai is an ethnomusicologist at Williams College in Massachusetts. His career focuses on studying regional African music. He also comes from a well-known musical family in Zimbabwe. Tendai is too humble to call himself an expert, but his research does make him an expert on the evolution of Zimbabwean music and the history of the Mbira. Before colonialism, there was nothing controversial about it. It was an instrument which was used in ceremonies 
dealt with sacred ceremonies and secular ceremonies. If a baby is born, there's nothing sacred about that, right? It's just a special event, a very special context, and people converge and play for entertainment purposes and welcoming this person, right? And the opposite of that is also true, like the death of a person, it becomes a bit more serious because you're celebrating a life and also a culture. The next thing to that is that there are people who have developed songs or composed the songs to be played in churches, right? And that point drives me into the colonial period where when the Brits came to Zimbabwe, they demonized the instrument like, ah, oh, it's a hidden, it's satanic because you should read the Bible and sing SATB. SATB, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. Like church songs, holy, 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 that kind of thing. So that's what they were encouraging. They tried by all means to kind of suppress it, destroy it, clean it out of the system. It was suppressed by the central government because they didn't want people to perform their cultures because of the spiritual aspect of it. It allowed people to gather and they didn't want people to be gathering. So they banned the particular agencies that allowed them to gather, like drumming circles, mbira playing, dances. Tendai says that tactic was to ban places where the mbira might be played, but the instrument was never exactly banned outright. The word ban can be controversial, but I understand why people use it. It was kind of suppression is probably the better word. So it was more suppressed by the central government, but the church wanted to kind of ban it completely. So the word ban can come in the context of the church. They wanted to suppress it so that people can sing hymns and they sing in English. The churches were the biggest agencies because people were drawn to them. What happens with a with an institution like colonialism is, you know, they want to make sure that the the colonized end up um, accepting certain things. So. A lot of people accepted this belief that the instrument was actually evil and shouldn't be played. But it's hard for something so meaningful and joyful to just disappear. People went underground with the instrument for a long time, playing in secret. But eventually, being underground wasn't good enough. After nearly 100 years of oppression, Ethnic Africans wanted liberation. Colonialism had to end. To understand how it came to an end, we kind of have to take a short detour back into colonial history. Zimbabwe's fight for independence started the moment the British took over the region in 1890. Everything changed for ethnic Africans. There was an all-white ruling class, And they believed their whiteness gave them a supreme authority to rule. Government jobs, businesses, positions of power and influence, all reserved for white colonizers. Even though ethnic Africans were contributing to society, fighting under the British flag, in World War I and again in World War II, they were still being pushed to the extreme margins of society. They were forced into economic poverty and in many ways, cultural poverty. Attempted revolts happened, but 
they were always crushed. By 1965, southern Rhodesia, as it was called during the colonial era, went rogue from the British crown. The government unilaterally declared their country was no longer a self-governing British colony. But ethnic Africans were still being marginalized. It's 85 years since Europeans colonized this black African territory they called Rhodesia, after their imperialist patron, Cecil Rhodes. Today, a tiny white population, about the size of Newcastle, governs six million Africans. They no more share power now than they did at the turn of the century. Most whites came to... By the 70s, ethnic Africans said enough is enough. In the late 70s, at that time, there was this whole movement of taking back what was ours. And this, at the same time, was, you know, tied to the whole, uh, let's end this colonial regime. You know, funny enough, that's also the time you were seeing the whole, you know, civil rights movement uh, happening in the U.S. Uh, so there's a lot of trickle effects from one place to another, a lot of influences. That movement took the Mbira with it. So the instrument started gaining momentum as a form of social and political resistance uh, in the 70s. Um, and that's how it came back into the forefront of people's minds. Between 1978 and 1979, ethnic African leaders negotiated agreements with the predominantly white government. The plan basically said... A multiracial government would be formed, as long as the white population could keep their economic comfort in society. The climate was very tense. Around that time, Chaka's parents were just married. They were young and outspoken about independence. And because of that, they had to leave southern Rhodesia in 1978. Chaka's dad left Zimbabwe by himself at first, then his mom a little while after. He was involved as a student activist and found himself getting kicked out of the country uh, and went through a few other countries and places before uh, finding himself in, in Edmonton. They were academic, so they applied for university scholarships in other countries. Eventually, they were accepted at the University of Alberta. Chaka's dad did his PhD in English literature, while his mom was doing a master's in community development. His parents stayed in Canada for two years. They had a daughter, Chaka's older sister, Marl. And from afar, they watched news unfold about their home country. The Union Jack is lowered for the last time in Rhodesia to mark the end of British rule in Africa. Zimbabwe finally gained independence in 1980. The war then ended uh, and, and uh, Rhodesia became Zimbabwe, a new country, and everyone was excited uh, to go back home. Chaka was born not long after that in 1989, into what was virtually a brand new country, still buzzing with cultural change. The Mbira was a soundtrack, faintly playing in the background of this new country's path through history. But for more than 100 years, ethnic Africans had been told their culture and the Mbira was evil and wrong. Even after independence, the instrument still felt wrong to some people. 
if you were a Mbira player, it was easy for you to be ostracized. So I remember growing up, and like Mbira would never have been the one thing that I picked up as a kid, uh, because it was just seen as something that you know, oh yeah, those people who who worship the ancestors, they that's what they do. Or you know, there's always the saying that oh, you grow up a uh, uh, a beggar <laughs> because you're not gonna be successful if you play Mbira, you're not gonna make any money from it or, or anything like that. So it was really an ostracized instrument. I, I was lucky to have grown up in a in a neighborhood um, that was, you know, fairly affluent, and it wasn't what the the rich kids listened to either. So, you know, it was just never part of my psyche growing up. But it was there. It was just part of the culture at that point. It was on, you know, you'd hear it on the radio, but it just wasn't something that you know I was particularly engaged or tuned into at that point. That way of thinking for Chaka was about to change. Those Mbira players going against the colonial norms in the 70s, their songs made it to the radio. Those musicians were leading the way. And in 2007, when he was 18 years old, Chaka started to tune into their message. I'm in my, in my room at St. George's College. I'm a boarder and I'm taking a nap at the, at the end of a long day. And uh, it's around 5 p.m., it's it's starting to to get dark and uh i'm trying to sleep but i hear this raindrop sounding sound floating up the stairs and into my room and i realize that it's uh it's the music of chuoniso maraire And I wake up to the sound and I realize I want to learn to play this instrument. So I get up, I, uh, I, I dress and I, I follow the music. I go downstairs and I see the boarding master, uh, Mr. Haddad, and he's playing uh, Chiwoniso on the radio. And so I ask him, can I borrow your CD? And so he gives me the CD and I spend the rest of the evening listening to it. Chaka was being charmed by his ancestors' culture, his culture, finding him in this modern form. I think what really then got me was just the how serene, how, I don't want to use the word magical, but just how magical that feeling was of that music just kind of floating into my ears and into the bedroom, <laughs> into my room where I was. Um, it was really still and soothing and calming, um, but yet at the same time vibrant and uplifting and, you know, just connected me, grounded me somehow in a way that I couldn't describe at that time. A few days later, I, I spoke to uh, 
our choir um, mistress, her name was Miss Matero. So I, you know, asked her, "Hey, if I want to learn Bira, where would I? Because I had no idea where to start." And so she pointed me in the direction of a na- of a of a man named Albert. And so you know, I went to my I think it was to my mom first, and I said, "Mom, I think I want to learn how to play the Bira." I don't quite remember her reaction, but I I do think she was a little surprised, and I'm not sure she thought I was serious. But she gave me the money for it, and at that time I had my driver's license. Uh, and they said, "Look, you got your license. You're done school now. Take yourself to your lessons. Do your thing." And so she gives me she gives me the money, and uh, I go and meet Albert. Turns out he's you know one of the the pioneers of Mbira music, you know, following the colonial era. Um, and he'd been working a lot and he's got a Mbira center, you know, as part of his house. And it's a whole setup and a whole establishment that I did not know anything about at that time. And so Albert says to me, you know, I really don't like teaching. Uh, I, I don't like teaching. I hate students. <laughs> uh, but because Ms. Mtero, you know, referred you, I will teach you. But I'll only teach you, I'll give you 10 lessons. That's all I'm giving you. And then you're on your own. Which turns out to be the case with most Mbira players. You have to find different teachers and you sit next to them and you watch over their shoulder or you watch their hands move and you figure out how to play it that way. Yeah, I remember it was, it was a bit hard. Yeah, I remember the instrument was just didn't make sense to me. Um, my fingers were really stiff. Um, it was sore on my nails, um, <laughs> and uh, he sat me down and he taught me one or two lines, and then he's like, "Okay, repeat," and then he stood up and <laughs> walked away. <laughs> and so I spent a good ten minutes, you know, repeating this, these lines, and he's, you know, telling me the history of this that first song. He's like, "This is the song that everybody." Uh, learns. This is the very first song that you learn when you're playing Bira, and it's called Karika Mombe. And so it's like all other songs come from this song. So if you don't know the song, you can't play Bira. Like, okay, I gotta know the song. Uh, he also asked me what type of Bira I wanted to to learn. There, there are a few different types. The one that that I had seen the most is called Nyunga Nyunga. So. It's smaller, it's got about 11 to 15 keys. And I said, that's the one I'm playing. He said, no, that's not the one I'll teach you. I'll teach you the hard one. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and he says, no, that's not a real mbira. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so he teaches me the the, the, the hard one, uh, which is the one I play now, which is about 23 keys. And it's called mbira huru, which means big mbira, or mbira zawadzim, which is the mbira that belongs to the ancestors. And this is the one that uh, has been in the culture for hundreds and hundreds of years. The other one that I wanted to play was a more recent innovation. <laughs> but he's like, no, I will teach you the, the big mbira. So that first lesson was hard. I I remember I took he, he lent me a mbira and I took it home and plunked a few, few notes <laughs> uh, trying to show up to my parents and my sisters. I think at about four lessons in, he had taught me three songs. Um, and he said to me, it doesn't matter if you're good at them or not, but I'm teaching you because then you can continue learning them um, you know, on, on, on your own. 
uh, these were songs that I knew too as well, so that that really helped. And then I learned one song, uh, which is called Mukati and Horombo, and turns out to be one of my mom's favorite songs. So I started learning that song, uh, and really, really playing it, and now I play it well. <laughs> Progressively, it started getting uh, easier, and my fingers kind of, you know, got used to 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 the keys and the structure. Um, but I was by the time the ten lessons were done, I can't say I was like great or anything. Um, yeah, he, it was just a foundation that he, uh, he he built. Chaka felt like he was doing something special, something worthwhile and meaningful. When I think back, I was kind of frustrated at that time that a lot of the activities that we were doing as kids had shifted from actually making our own activities and doing our own stuff to consuming. Surely we can do something more. And I'd always been the kind of kid who wanted to create. I loved art at the same time. I, 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 I still paint and draw. So I always thought that we didn't create enough and that we just waited to be entertained. Being an active participant has always been important to Chaka. And now, he was part of that push to bring Zimbabwean traditions back to daily life. Some now famous musicians like Thomas Mapfumo, who were playing guitars at the time and realized, no, 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 no. I can do the same thing that I'm doing on the guitar on the mbira. Or I can take what the mbira does and mimic it on the guitar. This is the music of Thomas Mepfumo. His nickname is the Lion of Zimbabwe. He was a fierce critic of the colonial regime. And even after independence, he used his music to highlight injustice and talk about cultural and historical issues. Yeah, it was really driven by the musicians of the time who were looking for something of their own, something they you know they're grown up being influenced by, you know, the Elvis Presleys of the time and that era of music. But they were like, okay, how do we take this and make it into something of our own? We have traditions that are ours that we might have lost for the better part of a century, but they're still there. Let's, let's capture that. And then you started getting some young people picking the instruments up uh, in the 90s. And, you know, it was kind of, it moved from a, a political resistance to more social commentary. So musicians, they always speak about what's happening in society. Um, and it kind of, kind of started becoming cool. <laughs> Just as this cultural shift was happening, and Chaka was jumping headlong into his ancestors' culture, he was making plans to leave Zimbabwe. His sister moved back to Edmonton years before, so Chaka applied to the University of Alberta, and he got in. But with the greatest Mbira teachers and knowledge base in Zimbabwe, how could Chaka learn here in Canada? Well, call it luck, fate, destiny... Whatever it was, it was on his side.
You're listening to The Doc Project. I'm Tanera McLean, in for AC Row this week, and we're kicking off CBC Radio's Black on the Prairies project. Coming up, how is Chaka going to continue learning the Mbira in Canada, of all places? Chances are slim, but not impossible. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. I moved here a bit earlier before the semester started, and I was living with my uh, with my sister and her husband for about two months. And they said, "Why don't you go volunteer somewhere? Take your beer and you know, go play somewhere." So, <laughs> but you know, I go to the U of A. And, um, you know, I'm talking to people about Mbira and uh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Zimbabwe. There's a Zimbabwean here and he's a musician and he's doing his PhD in music. I'm sure he must know about Mbira. And so I connected with the Zimbabwean. His name is Tendai. Uh, he comes from a really great musical family in Zimbabwe. And so Tendai starts teaching me Mbira. <laughs> Remember Tendai? When I came to the U.S. about 14 years ago, I came to University of Idaho for two years, and then I came into Canada for four years for my Ph.D. Well, that Ph.D., he did it at the University of Alberta, and it coincided with Chaka's arrival in Edmonton at the same university. If Chaka was going to meet anyone by chance outside of Zimbabwe to help him master Imbira, Tendai was that person. Small world, yeah. I had heard through the international office that, oh, this is a Zimbabwean student. There are a lot of Zimbabweans in Edmonton anyway. So here comes this very happy kid and he's very excited with his long dreadlocks and big smile. But Chaka just showed up in front of me and he was like, this beaming young person with Mbira. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I think he, I started crushing um, like the school he went to without me knowing that that's where, the, that's where he went, right? Because he went to what are called group A. There's group A schools and group B. Group A are like all the schools where all the rich kids went to, right? And I went to group B schools where all the ghetto kids went to, right? And then I said, saying, you know, are you one of those kids who went to St. George's, you know, because those schools don't promote traditional music. And oops, he says, oh, actually, I went to St. George's. So that broke the ice, and then I, st- I was trying to, you know, play nice. So the moment he said he, he wants to play in beer, and so I was like, ah, it's just this kid who is, you know, born in us with a silver spoon, and he, I say to him, because he had already started in Zimbabwe, I was just another stepping stone towards his development. And I was like, the thing with any musical instrument, mbira, guitars, piano, you name it, it's your interest and your heart that guides you to being a good player. And if you really want to be great, it's more of the time that you devote to it. Even though they had different paths toward the Ambira, 
Tendai was committed to helping Chaka learn. And he was connected. He knew tons of people involved with playing in Bira because of his research. You know, his partner at the time was also into Mbira music, and they connected me with a whole community of Mbira players in Edmonton and uh, particularly in BC. And he tells me about a festival uh, where people go and learn Zimbabwean music each year in BC. And one Mbira connection kept leading to another. It's, it's, it's crazy. So he then introduces me to a lady by the name of Mary Claire, who moved from BC and uh, she learned Mbira music in BC, if I'm not mistaken. Her husband is into Zimbabwean music. Soon I meet a gentleman named Ronald. He sees me playing and says, hey, I used to play Mbira as a kid. I don't remember if I you know, know how to play anymore, but let me buy Mbira and, and we'll play together. And before I know it, Ronald and I are sitting down playing Mbira together and then forming a band. This is something Chaka didn't see coming. You know, we go on Facebook and connect with, you know, people who are just over in BC. Huge community, much bigger than here. Um, and who have been playing Mbira for decades, uh, since the 80s and 90s. And they say, hey, why don't you come over for this festival? So we go to this festival. And it's, um, you know, a week-long um, festival of learning how to play in Bira, and they have teachers from across North America, and they invite teachers from Zimbabwe. The western shores of North America are a hotbed for Mbira. From Oregon into Washington, B.C., greater western Canada, even up into Alaska, there are at least four major annual festivals and camps for people to learn and teach Mbira. So how did this happen? During the upheaval around independence, some Zimbabweans left and brought their education and skills to Canada and decided to stay. But even before that, there was one pivotal person who indirectly influenced Chaka's entire journey to playing the instrument. There was a man by the name of Dumisani Maraire. So I mentioned his daughter, Chiwoniso Maraire, who's the one whose CD I heard. Her father spent some time teaching, and I think it was at the University of Washington, and he was a music teacher. And so he taught um, students there how to build mbira, how to play mbira, and it kind of caught on. And that really was the start of uh, the mbira music community in, in, in North America. And so you have people going on exchange programs to Zimbabwe to learn how to play, and, um, you know, really keeping that music alive. And I'm talking like Americans and Canadians. So for the most part, it was Americans, Canadians, until you had this wave of, uh, of Zimbabweans migrating to, to North America. The PhD dissertation Tendai did at the University of Alberta was all about how traditional Zimbabwean music has rapidly spread across North America since the 1970s. How the African diaspora brought it here and liberated it from a century of colonial suppression. Now, the Mbira is thriving. Chaka has now formed his own musical group, the Mbira Renaissance Band. 
The band has been together just a few short years, but they've been successful. Nominated for local music awards, and even played at events like the Calgary Stampede. And that's a huge deal. Chaka grew up just as Zimbabwe was freeing itself from colonialism, at a time of serious instability. For Chaka, feeling comfortable to play in Bira in Zimbabwe should have been a lot easier than it was. There's always this bit of conflict that comes through because I was, you know, raised Catholic, uh, I'm still Catholic. So it's always like, how do I resolve that Catholic upbringing with what you were always taught about this instrument as a kid, you know, but knowing that that's just a whole lot of nonsense. <laughs> the way that I have resolved that within myself is, you know, uh, spiritually there are many ways to be fulfilled. You know, we, we play piano in church. You know, people play guitars in church. Uh, why can't the same instruments be used for religious and spiritual purposes? Why can't that happen with, with Tambira? So I, I don't see any problem at all with that. Speaking to Chaka, it's clear that undoing that colonial brainwashing is a long and difficult road. He's doing the hard emotional work to correct an attempt at cultural genocide that started centuries ago. Now, here in Edmonton, He's leading a wave of excitement around this small wooden box with metal keys that European settlers called evil, when in reality, the whole time, it was an instrument of joy, a symbol of peace and reverence and unity that brought people together. Unfortunately, what colonization does is it, it strips you or it strips a population of pride in their culture, pride in who they are. And then you have another group of people, thousands and thousands of miles away, who are like, hey, this is the best instrument of all time, and we're going to learn it, you know. It just shows to me that Sometimes we don't value the things that we should value, the things that are ours. We really should take more pride and more ownership of what is ours. With the band, I would love to have a Juno nomination uh, with this one day. Uh, we've been nominated for the Edmonton Music Awards before, um, but I would love to, you know, go a little further and uh, really put it on the map in, in that way. So that's, that's the target that I'm, I'm setting. Uh, I mentioned it to some of my bandmates a few years ago, and they're like, ha 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 ha, but it's possible. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's definitely possible. Chaka Zinyemba. That documentary was produced by me, Tanera McLean, with Veronica Simmons and AC Rowe. Besides being an incredible musician, Chaka works as a disaster management coordinator. Since the pandemic started, he's been going to COVID-19 hotspots to help manage outbreaks on the ground. And during all of that, 
he made time to compose and play original Mbira music for this documentary. His story today is launching the Black on the Prairies project on CBC. It's a collection of articles, personal essays, images, and more exploring the past, present, and future of Black life in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. The project explores themes of migration, work, Black and Indigenous relations, politics and resistance, and the future. Black on the Prairies is co-created, co-produced, and led by CBC Saskatchewan journalist Omaira Issa and Now or Never host Ifichua Telu. You can read about Chaka's story and so many others at cbc.ca slash blackontheprairies. You can see pictures and video of Chaka with his Zimbira and his band on our Doc Project Facebook page. And in the spirit of celebrating the African diaspora on the prairies, CBC Music has created a playlist called Prairie Sounds. There are a few artists you may have already heard of, like Arlo Maverick, Stephanie French, and Odario, and a few that may be new to you, like Wild Black and Jay Wood. And Manitoba band Super Duty Tough Work is also on this list. We made a documentary about them earlier this year, exploring how high-quality hip-hop music is being made in Winnipeg, with a philosophical Canadian twist. If you haven't heard that documentary, you can still find it on our website, cbc.ca slash docproject. The Doc Project is produced by A.C. Rowe, Sherry O.K.K., Allison Cook, Kent Hoffman, Andrew Friesen, and me. Althea Manassan is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm Tanara McLean. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.